1: Hello fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host Steve Dawson coming to you from the Henhouse studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them each month i'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest it may be a musician a songwriter a producer or an engineer but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Folks, how are you doing? Thanks so much for joining me. Music nerds of the world, we have a great episode here for you this month with my guest Gabriel Roth, also known to some as Bosco Man. He is the founder of Daptone record label and the kingpin of the Dap Kings band. He's a bass player, producer, engineer. Uh, He was also the founder of a label before Daptone called Desco. And uh, he's a great songwriter, great musician, and just generally a pretty inspiring human being. It was great to speak with him. Uh, Originally, I got to know him through his work with Sharon Jones. As her star rose over the years, I always listened to her records and loved them. And Gabriel's the man behind those sounds. Along the way, he was also involved in so many more projects and things that I found out about kind of uh, bit by bit, really. By keeping up to date with what Daptone was up to, I sort of rode the the Gabriel Roth wave, so to speak so heavy, heavy soul and funk artists like Lee Fields and Charles Bradley came through the studio. He's also worked with Booker T. Jones on an album in the last, I don't know when that was, eight or nine years ago, something like that. He was involved in the Amy Winehouse Whirlwind, of course, and lately he's been making records with the mighty James Hunter. Most of this stuff has been coming out of an awesome factory of music that I find very inspiring, and that was his um, studio in Brooklyn that he built from scratch, and you're going to hear all about that including charles bradley putting up some drywall for him and sharon jones doing that and some electrical work for him along the way uh he built the studio he built this little empire basically out of out of a bunch of very talented friends, so the names of the people involved in the Daptone releases, like Neil Sugarman and Binky Griptite, Homer Steinwise, these are guys that he's worked with for a long, long time, and it's a really cool little scene. Like it sort of brings to mind Stax records and Motown records back in the day. Very DIY. They were working on shoestring budgets, making super cool dirty, dirty funk records right from the beginning. And he really hasn't strayed from that. He's really stuck to his guns over the years. And one other thing I want to point out before we get going, that everybody needs to go and look up on the internet, look up Shitty is Pretty. What it is is an essay that he wrote quite a while ago, maybe 15 years ago or something, or maybe more, maybe 20 years ago. And it showed up in a, in a I think, a British recording magazine, could have been an American one, I'm not sure. But he wrote this article. It's in two parts, so it's Shitty is Pretty Volume 1 and Shitty is Pretty Volume 2. And the gist of it is kind of like how to make a dirty funk 45 record. (laughs) But when I read it, I just found it so inspiring because so much of it kind of bleeds over into other kinds of music as well. You don't have to be making funk records. I was never a funk producer or record maker, although I love listening to funk music. Uh, I, it wasn't really what I was up to, but I just found so much of what he had to say about making records in general and his approach to music and his approach to not overplaying and not overdoing things and, and keeping things simple and not feeling like you have to make records the way that everybody else does. Basically, that's the thing that I took out of it the most was like, here's this guy saying, just do your own thing, make make music the way that you want to make it. and forget what everybody else says. Just do what you got to do. Do what you're good at and do what you love. So you really should read that. It's not that long, but it's a, it's an incredible piece of writing, I think. And we got to talk about that too. So we got into all kinds of stuff, all kinds of great music. You'll hear about his history and how he got started and what he's been up to lately as well. So please enjoy my conversation with Gabriel Roth. The thing that really kind of strikes me a lot about you and your career is that what I find is most people have this arc of learning and getting good at what they do, and generally have an early career and early catalog of stuff that they try and bury or forget. Whereas you just kind of seem to come from nowhere, making badass funk records from the get go. And I'm just, <laughs> I'm just wondering, like, how the hell did that happen? Like, what was? I mean, you know, like we could maybe talk about your early, like your growing up and stuff like that. But how, like, as a producer and like a studio guy, like, how did you not? Have like this kind of forgettable mm. early portion of your
2: career, or have you just buried it really well? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I guess you know my perspective is not the same. My perspective is, you know, my I've, I, not that I'm constantly improving, getting better, but just that I've you know I listen to old records a lot of times with a lot of a lot of regret and a lot of thinking. Man, I didn't know what I was doing. Sure, but I, I mean, I think probably. Since I started making records, I, I I came into I think it's because I came into making records from a funny place, a, a unique place. I didn't come into making records as somebody who wanted to be an artist or even a musician or even a producer or any of that stuff. I, I thought I was going to be a math teacher. You know, I took <laughs> really? many years. Yeah, and I still I mean I still kind of like to do it. You know, and I, I it took me many years to really take seriously the idea of working in music as an honest career. I, I kept thinking like at some point I'm going to have to get a real job, you know? Right. And like the uh,
1: bottom's going to fall out of this shit.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and now I'm, I'm getting pretty old and I still don't have a real job. So, uh, <laughs> you know, at some point I kind of had to take it seriously, I guess. But, um, I think from the beginning I was just, it, it, I started by making records with, with, a, a guy named Philip Lehman, yep. my first record with Desco. And, uh, he was a guy that was putting out these reissues. And he was just kind of a crazy dude. And I was real into the records he was putting out. And, a mutual friend hooked us up and told him that I knew how to make records and told me that he knew how to put out records. And
1: Did you know how to make records?
2: Not really. I mean, I, I I started taking recording classes at NYU. Oh, okay. I was, um, I didn't have a major and I was into my like junior year. Yeah. So I just kind of flipped through the book and looked for something that seemed fun and not too hard. And uh, it was cool. You know, it was like, acoustics classes and electronics classes and music history and music theory and yes. all stuff that seemed like interesting classes right so i just kind of you know i mean I, I was into music but i just kind of randomly grabbed that and and so i knew a little bit about how to record but you know like a recording student i didn't really know much i knew some general principles and you know how to hit play on tape machine and what notes were in a c chord and so like i, I wasn't real deep uh-huh. before that but um we started making records, and the first records we made were kind of like fake old records
1: like you were really going for that retro kind of sound or something you mean
2: no it wasn't I mean it was more literal than I mean it was, it was the first record I put out was literally a a reissue of a soundtrack from nineteen seventy one of a kung fu, a kung fu movie soundtrack
1: really which one was that
2: it was called it was called the Revenge of Mr Mapoji. And, you know, we got away with it. I mean, we, we sold it to record stores as reissues. Everybody thought it was this old movie, and we'd go into record stores to sell it, because at the time, that's how we were, um, uh, you know, selling records. We'd go, we'd go around in, in Phillips Jeep and just drive around at record stores in New York and Philly and Boston and stuff. And
1: So do you mean that that, that movie didn't really exist? You just made
2: it up? Yeah, the movie never existed. <laughs> I love but, it. But people, right away, people bought into it, and people were telling us, like, Oh yeah my cousin's got the VHS I'll, I'll see if I can borrow it That's a great movie you know and they you find you find that you know we didn't really have to bullshit people that much they would kind of you know bullshit themselves you know so but you know it was a time they were talking about 96
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know 95 96 so at that time it was like people that were there was a scene of people that were into like funk records it was the kind of the beginning of the whole kind of deep funk thing with Keb Darge and Snowboy and these guys in England and there were collectors you know in Europe and a few here you know that were buying these th- kind of real rare raw funk records and I was just buying the reissues and the compilations and stuff. but those people had zero interest in a new record right you know people that had that taste in music had zero interest in a new record because right
1: like after like 1976 they're
2: just tuning yeah in, exactly right? yeah. yeah exactly if 76 yeah I mean because the, the only I mean when you talked about like the state of that kind of music at that point there was it was kind of this um you know that acid jazz kind of scene right and like you know, the brand new heavies was kind of the coolest you know coolest band that you could find really so and if that wasn't hadn't really was pretty far away from the rawness of what everybody was you know not everybody but what this small scene was digging about these old funk records so our take on it was like we would not want to hear somebody's new record because they all, all they all sound terrible. You know,
3: yeah.
2: the way that people make records sounds terrible. So we, you know, we, you know, for me it was I was mostly along for the ride because Philip was pretty crazy and it was a lot of his ideas. But I guess the point is I I came into it with this very contrary attitude towards the music business. One that I didn't want to be in the music industry. Uh-huh. Two, I didn't care how it worked yeah. or who bought my records because I wasn't trying to make a living off it. Right. I didn't care if anybody knew who I was. You know, I didn't care if the record sounded distorted or like the things that I was tapped into was the things that I loved about listening to records, you know? Right. And I had zero agenda about, oh, you know, we're going to fool people or we're going to come off, you know, we need, we need to sound more retro or we need to sound more like this, or how did they do it at stacks? Like there was none of that type of thinking. It was all about kind of what feels good and how can we make the most raw fucked up punk record? You know, that was, that was our, kind of our mantra and that was kind of the only place we were coming from because of that I think from the beginning we had a very different approach different different um different pressures or Mm -hmm. maybe lack of pressure you know that that most people have when they're making records especially early in their career people are trying to be successful and trying to get you know trying to follow Mm -hmm. what's going on in the industry and stuff and I was very contrary from the beginning because I was like I don't want any part of the music industry I'm just right I'm just making these cool messed up records and
1: that's actually a pretty cool way to come at it, not having that pressure.
2: Yeah. But I mean, I I guess just to your point, that's kind of probably why I had a certain sound from the beginning is because Mm -hmm. it was, it was coming out of, you know, though my tastes have changed and my approaches have changed. There's definitely Mm -hmm. stuff I used to do that, you know, in the studio, even that now I roll my eyes and think, man, why would I do it that way? (laughs) But, um, in in general, I kind of have the same attitude now as when I started, you know? Mm -hmm. So, in the same kind of philosophy. And over the years, the really valuable part of it is kind of building a family of people that have a similar philosophy towards music. You know, And it's not necessarily all about being contrary, but it's about really stripping away the bullshit and focusing on the thing that we love about it, the thing that makes you get excited when you hear a record just focusing on that feeling and kind of drowning out the rest of the noise, you know?
1: Yeah, man. And so actually you bring up something that I wanted to talk to you about, which is that whole family thing. And, and that's something that you've succeeded at more than anyone in modern times that I can think of is like surrounding yourself with people that you've worked with for, I don't know, I like at least 20 years now, I would imagine. Um, It's the same guys over and over again. And you guys have this thing and it's kind of the way that, that you know motown rolled and stacks rolled and those kind of labels Mm -hmm. and scenes uh was that ever something that you were setting out to do or are these just guys that you've that you lucked out like from day one basically you've had this this crew of people around you
2: um i I mean it definitely wasn't like a crew of people just showed up at day one but it was i think it's the same thing i think the kind of process created the reality really because the process was just trying to do stuff that felt good and having a certain philosophy and you know, when you're hanging out, you meet people, and they meet people, and you need a trumpet player, and somebody says, "I can call my friend," and mm-hmm. you know that's how it happens. And right, and people come to the studio, and what happens is, if somebody really um, gels with you, you know, if they really dig what you're doing, and you dig what they're doing, you end up doing more stuff together. And if they don't, then they kind of you know fade away. You know, maybe you have right. a session, maybe it's good, maybe it's bad, whatever. But you're not calling the dude for the next session, you know. Yeah. So,
1: but it is remarkable to me that you know from er, from early recordings that you're involved in it's like the same guys there's like you know yeah. Binky binky Tights been there yeah and,
2: binky and Homer and neil and all that yeah it's it's been it's been a steady group that's
1: pretty remarkable
2: yeah 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 and, I, and it's something i'm I'm maybe the most proud of is just just being able to um you know surround myself with with uh, friends for for this many years yeah it's as as a band or label or anything you're right i mean it's pretty rare for people to be able to you know tolerate each other (laughs) for this long so obviously there's been a few exceptions Uh you know but for the most part man like we have a we have a and we have a pretty strong crew we have an amazing family of people yeah yeah so when you
1: when you were starting out like doing those early desco records where was the studio like did you um like pre-daptone where where were you recording
2: the very first one we did had a basement studio on Lud, Ludlow Street in the in the lower, on the Lower East Side, okay. before that was a nice place to be, actually. Um, like a, a, my friend Ray Lugo had a place, and we did the Revengements the from there. And after that, we started going out to uh, to Long Island mm-hmm. um, because uh, Philip found some studio out there called Dare Studios in Deer Park, Long Island. And It was like a heavy metal rehearsal spot,
3: really, <laughs>
2: but it's real cheap, and they had like a tape machine out there. <laughs> So we'd go out there, and that's when we recorded, you know, Sharon's first records with well, her first records with us, and and the first time we recorded Lee Fields, and and um, that's where we recorded like the Doctaris and a, a bunch of a bunch of those first records we recorded there. And then we did one record Avatar because Philip had a buddy that worked at the power. It was the power station at the time. Um, oh, like the big, other side, a big fancy place. That was like one. That yeah, was the one record we did at a fancy place, and it was the hardest one to get to sound good. Really, but um, and yeah. And then and then we started, uh, we kind of had our own studios. We we rented a place with Frankie Inglese, who used to be, I don't know if you remember Frankie Jackson, Soul Kitchen, this party it was in New York for years, but uh, we rented a spot with him on, on the Lower East Side on Orchard Street, Grand, I think it was. Um, this beautiful old, old Jewish couple had this spot, and the old man would play violin downstairs, and they told us we could use the apartment for whatever we wanted, and we put in real thick carpeting and started recording. <laughs> Little did they know. And about a, yeah, about a week after we started recording, they came up and told us, no, "I'm sorry, you can't do that here." But that that was that, that was a, one of our first studios that was really ours, and that one we recorded. Uh, you know, some more of Sharon's first stuff like "Damn It's Hot" and a lot of that. Give me the Paw record and some stuff with Lee, You know, some of the other stuff with Leaf Fields and stuff. And then. We rented a place on Forty First Street, four forty West Forty First Street, uh, in the basement of this apartment building. We kinda had an office in a basement and a studio in a sub basement. This mm-hmm. is when Desco was in its heyday. And we were there for a number of years. That was where most of we made most of the desco stuff. Okay. Was there. So we were there until around two thousand when my partner and I uh, shut down the shut down the label and parted ways.
1: So, just to clarify the timeline, was Sharon Jones involved in the Desco days or was that? Oh,
2: yeah. Oh, well, okay. she was involved. Yeah, she made records in Deer Park. Was, I met her in Deer Park at, at Dare Studios, man. It was, we, we had the saxophone player we used to work with a lot called Joe Urbeck. And I said, uh, we were recording with Lee Fields uh-huh. uh, the song Steam Train and, and uh, Let a Man Do What He Wanted Do. It was the first 45 we did. Right. We were recording with him and we needed some background singers for a couple songs and um, Joe said oh my girlfriend can come and bring a couple friends and we said fine and he showed up the next day with Sharon <laughs> and we said where are your friends and She said so where are your friends are there supposed to be three of you and she said "Why well, pay three when you can pay me and that was probably the first thing Sharon ever said to me really and we hit it off you know? yeah and it was funny because that day she recorded background vocals and there was one song that we had it wasn't even a song it was for an album Philip had a buddy that was you know fancied himself a comedian and had this whole routine of, you know, and, and we were kind of recorded this funk track and he was, it was almost like a blowfly type of thing. It wasn't that dirty, but he, you know, he, he he had this intention of, of putting this kind of rap over the top of it, where he's going to talk about getting out of jail and this whole thing he had. Anyway, we want, it was called switchblade. And we just wanted Sharon to sing the background, just
3: switchblade,
2: you know, sing the harmonies. Yeah. So we brought her in there and, you know, there was no vocal on the track. It was just the track and she was feeling it she sang the harmonies, and they were kind of crushing. And then she's asking, like, what what is this? Like, why am I just singing Switchblade? So we kind of described described (laughs) to her, like, yeah, it's, you know, it's this thing, and he's going to do this kind of funny bit about getting out of jail and something, and his name's Switchblade, and blah, blah, blah. And uh, she just started vamping. And uh, we hit record. I think I I I sped the tape machine up so that when you played it back at regular speed, her voice would be lower because, you know, she would kind of pretend to be a man getting out of jail. (laughs) And she just, off the top of her head, just just completely you know no uh, shit. That's just just ad-laden. crushed just crushed just crushed like yeah like three 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 four minutes of her and we were just rolling in the studio so you know his phil's buddy never made it on the record and that was the first that was the first lead vocal i ever recorded of sharon when she wasn't even singing she was just talking trash you know with the tape slowed down wow so, but uh, yeah, that was when I started recording her, and then then in on that Orchard Street studio, we recorded, you know, Damn It's Hot and and Bump and Touch and a bunch of those those early disco mm-hmm. singles. And then by the time we got to 440, we were recording like You Better Think Twice and some of that stuff. But um, yeah, she never, you know, we'd intended on working on an album for disco, and and we kind of shut our doors before we got her album, you know, okay. before we ever had an album with her. Okay, so that's why that was the first thing
1: I have to. So can you tell me a bit about like in that era, like the Desco era, when you're kind of, it seems like you're moving studios quite a bit and you didn't really have a home base really that you were digging into. Um, how were you, like, were you generally setting up all in one room, minimal miking, all that kind of stuff? Or, or did you have, like, were you, were you iso- isolating stuff because you had short space or?
2: I mean, we had a little bit of isolation. Like Dare Studios, I think, had like two little rooms. Uh, one of them the size of a kind of big closet, one of them the size of a slightly bigger closet. Yeah. And, uh, and um, I remember I used to, I was engineering and playing bass for a lot of it, so I would mm-hmm. just plug into a direct box in the control room. Okay. And, you know, had to punch in. I'd always hit record with my toe. <laughs> <laughs> but... um. <clears throat> Yeah, uh, and it was mostly me and Philip and a very good friend, Mike Wagner, who for years made records with us. And the three of us would, would do it. And we had different friends that would come in, but the, you know, the three of us were kind of um, keeping most of it together ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, but we were mostly in one in in one room when we could be. You know, yeah, we did overdubs though. I mean, we did you know horn overdubs and vocal overdubs and percussion mm-hmm. and whatever we needed to do, we could overdub. Okay, but we tried to we tried to to cut in the same room when we could.
1: Yeah. When you eventually decided to get the Dap Tone thing going and and like did the studio fall into place very soon after that? Like how did that the timeline of that work?
2: Uh well I guess after after Desco, you know, I was I was of course, you know, uh broken and broke and uh temping you know, taking super jobs. Really? you know, I wanted to, I I was trying to get something going again. And, and, um, I, I talked to, there was a company called see-through that existed for a moment, like everything else in the music industry. And they, um, it was, it was, um, they, they offered me like an imprint deal where I couldn't, I could just basically produce records and, and they were going to put them out. And I was like, Oh, it was a great deal. And I worked, you know, negotiated with them and had with them, finally got the deal we wanted. And they said, okay, great. The checks in the mail, we're going to. (laughs) <laughs> write you this big check, so I um, I wanted to start recording. So my friend Amayo, by that time, we would kind of started like Antibalas. Yeah. My friend uh, Martin Perna started Antibalas, and um, you know, with we, you know, we didn't we didn't we've kind of stumbled upon Amayo because he had this. I, I don't know how deep I'm gonna go into these stories. I'll go on and on and on. But go man. You know, we, we, we 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 were walking through Williamsburg and and we see this weird Nigerian like tea shop place and so we go in and it's it's a mayo's place he's rented this big place on grand street and upstairs he would do fashion shows and parties and you know he was a designer and he used to awesome. did everything you know but um we started talking to him because you know he was nigerian and at the time there weren't very few people who knew like who Fela was and we were obsessed and we were trying to play out this Afro-B music and stuff so we kind of connected with him and he had this big basement so he agreed somehow to let me build a studio in his basement. I don't remember how the whole situation worked. <laughs> so I built a studio in his basement and it was a basement. It was, you know, five, six foot ceiling. Oh wow! So I built a studio in his basement thinking, you know, the whole time thinking that, that I'd finished this negotiation, this check is coming and I got this sweet, this sweet deal coming my way. And, um, so I hired musicians, you know, a lot of them. Mostly people I worked with at Desco and stuff, but I gave everybody some money and I bought some gear and I started recording. I had like a eight track um, Atari machine, yeah. half inch. We started recording. We did Auntie Ballas records down there. We did the first Sharon Jones record we recorded there in that basement. Okay. <clears throat> and then it wasn't. And, and then we also did Neil Neil. I'd done Neil Sugarman's. You know the Sugarman three records. I'd done the first his first two records. Uh, I had produced on on my label Desco. And he was just an artist. but So he wanted me to produce another record for him. And he was going to do a deal, I think, with Valour at the time. I don't know if they're still wrong, but He was going to do a deal with Valour. And um, so I was producing this record for him. And we finished his record. And we finished the Sharon record. And his deal kind of didn't look great. And my deal went completely south. And they never came through with the money. It just never happened. Well, you know, what it was kind of scummy because they came back to me. I finished the whole record. And I submitted it to them. This is Adaptive and the first Aaron record. And I okay. submitted it to them. And they were like, "Uh, we don't really like it. It's not going to work out. <laughs> I was just oh, like, wait, what? It. Like, And because, you know, I mean, things, if, if they didn't like it, I mean, I, I totally, you know, I got to respect that. I, I don't want to take, take the money if they don't like the record. But I knew that the whole reason why they signed me is they were so hyped up on everything I did on Desco.
3: Right.
2: And if you like Desco, I, I don't see how you could not like Adaptive. I mean, that was the logical next record. Yeah. It was the same. Same band playing the same kind of music. It was put together a little bit better, but it was real raw. You know, I mean, it was the same. It, you know, if there was something that scared you about that, you would have. It feels like a live record. Yeah, yeah, it's a raw, it's a raw record. And and uh, so I, I thought, man, well, they don't like it, I guess. You know, so I kind of sunk away with my tail between my legs, thinking like, how am I ever going to pay back all this stuff? Because, you know, thinking that check was coming, <laughs> you know, it took me a while to learn that lesson. The check's not coming. Right. But, um, right you know, my credit cards were maxed out and I borrowed money from everybody I knew. And I was, you know, it was bad. So I slunk away and I was thinking, this is terrible. And of course, within a week after them telling me they didn't like the record, um, their, their backing fell through and their company disappeared. So Uh it it became kind of obvious to me quickly that it was like, man, they, it's not, they didn't like the record. They just didn't have the money. Right. And they, and they'd already kind of signed this contract. So they didn't want to they just wanted to back out yeah so he did it in a real crappy way so i was always mad about that but anyway so that that's kind of how we we you know we got started sugarman came to me and he was like man your deal's gone my deal's gone we have these two records you know you know you did it before you know because he, he really missed desco he missed having a family of musicians and this kind of yeah you know a label that had a sound and a vibe and that meant something you know it wasn't just a, a company it was actually you know, something so he he came to me about starting a company together and I was like, man, I hate this business, Man, I don't <laughs> want to sell records." If you, if you know, I'll make them if you sell them kind of, we made that kind of loosely made that deal
3: Yeah,
2: and, um, started making records. You know, we started with the records that we had, you know.
1: So at that point you had the Sugarman three and the first Sharon record.
2: Yeah. Pure cane sugar and dab tip were the first two records we had. And, and we we're able to get like a, a distribution, a couple distribution things going on. And, um, um, you know, <laughs> again these stories keep going but you know we got a distribution deal with caroline who who had done a lot of distribution for desco before that mm-hmm. and um we knew some people over there and they were very friendly and stuff but at the time they weren't signing anybody new, so they they had us go through a middleman company and uh um, we went through a this, this a, a middleman company they were called geez what were they called see it doesn't matter these companies come and go they're gone yeah totally <laughs> they're gone yeah but um <clears throat> which is the point of the story you know we So we put those records out and those were the first real Dusko releases. They came out on, you know, they sold CDs, which is a big thing at the time, compact discs. If you remember those, they sold, you know, a bunch of, yeah, good. Dap Dippin and and Pure Cane Sugar, they sold a bunch of them and they told us, great. We got, you know, $30,000 for you. Shelter. That was the name of the company. It was called Shelter. Guy named Duncan Hutchinson. If you ever see him, well, I hope you never see him, but so anyway, Duncan Hutchinson ran it and they, they, um, They'd signed a bunch of other people too and you know, as their and as their middleman deal, and they talked everybody else into doing all this promotion, spending money on all kinds of co-op ads and all kinds of stuff. So they tried to talk us into it. we were like, man, we're not spending money on that stupid stuff. We want to sell you know we weren't like I said, we were pretty realistic. We were yeah. like, we want to sell a couple thousand records and make a couple thousand bucks, we'll be happy. Right. So at the end of it what happened was they'd convinced all these other people to spend money, and so all their other records were in the red. So when it came time to get paid they were totally unrecouped right. and went under. Right. Meanwhile, our records are totally in the black, but it didn't matter, you know. There was no money. There was no money. Again, but <coughs> before we found that out, unfortunately, you know, when they told us, "Oh, you got like thirty thousand dollars coming," which we thought was, you know, it sounded like a million dollars really. For, right. You know, it was way more than any money we'd ever seen. We rented this house out in Bushwick. And proceeded again to max out whatever <laughs> credit cards I could find and, you know, and, um, you know, wait for grandparents to die so you could, you know, get another 500 bucks. You know, it was rough. We're scrapping from wherever you could and borrowing. And we you know, maxed our credit cards and we, we got some Black market uh, Home Depot cards. That's another story. But we started knocking out, knocking walls down. We rented this place on like a long lease. And- this is in Brooklyn now. This is in Bushwick. This is our studio. Yeah, okay. Bushwick, and it and um, on Troutman Street. And we started maxing out credit cards, buying all kinds of equipment. And, 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 well, (laughs) will they never learn? equipment. Will they never learn? (laughs) And then, of course, they they went out of business and they told us, oh, the check's not coming. Mm. And I had this, at the time, I had this whole budget. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to spend, you know, $5,000 on plumbers and $5,000 on electricians. And we're going to get contractors and we're going to do this. And this is how we're going to build a studio. So basically, we're left right after signing the lease and knocking down all the walls and buying a bunch of, you know, thousands of dollars for the drywall and, and, you know, soundproofing and all this stuff. And then it was just like nothing. So it was a, that was rough. That was kind of the roughest. Shit. As far as that arc arc went, you know? And, you know, cause it's just like, when will you learn, you know?
1: <laughs> and,
2: you know, and uh, for,
1: my, for my a guy w- that never intended to be in the business, you sure like dragged yourself through the mud. I
2: sure did. I sure did. Yeah. yeah so we ended up doing it ourselves, you know, and Sharon was helping me. I showed her how to do, Wiring, which I didn't know. I don't know why I thought I knew how to do it. You know, I mean, this is before the internet, so I must have looked in a book. If you remember those, they were back in the time of CDs. But you know, so so her and I did the wiring, and and um, really? Charles, yeah, Charles Bradley taught me how to do uh, a lot of plumbing stuff. He taught me how to balance radiators, really? to get bubbles out of, and we did. He, you know, and he told me, you know what he did man He told me he was going to cook. He liked to cook. He told me, man, you, you know, I, I was ripping. Out, I ripped out the gas line because there was. Well, again, there's a lot of stories here. I, I, you know, I get distracted, but there was there was gas lines in the house running to all of the. Like I, I knocked out the ceiling. Man, so many things went wrong in that house. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> I mean, firstly I knocked out a wall like there's a big wall on the back, like right, under the it's a two story house, right? It's like from the eighteen hundreds. So it's like it's house. like a
1: it's like a brownstone, like a like a it's not like a standalone house, right?
2: Well there there's some brown, but it ain't stone. Okay. It's oh, okay. it's a standalone house. It's like a two story house. Okay. It's a two story old, beat up two story house that's been run by, you know, slum lords for years, so it's totally, you know, fallen apart. And um
1: So you were renting in, it
2: or you owned the building? You're Renting it, okay. We still, yeah. And in the back room, there was there was like an apartment downstairs with kind of a kitchen and a living room. We, and I, I looked at it for a long time, and somehow I decided through my vast experience in architecture that it was not a, a load bearing wall. So I uh, knocked the wall out. Actually, the budos helped me knock the wall out. Budos came; they're good at destruction. Oh my god! They helped knock the wall out, and they knew a guy at the dump that we could sneak at the stuff in the middle of the night and stuff. So. You know, Staten Island. And um, so we knocked the wall out, and then the kitchen upstairs started sagging into the downstairs. <laughs> so we got – Sugarman used to drive this, whole big, this big station wagon. Right, it was Country Squire. He used to throw the Sugarman 3 in and drive them on tour all over the country in the Country Squire. So we got the jack out of his car, and I got some big beams and used the jack from his car to jack up the ceiling. Holy shit. Uh, to jack up the the roof and just stuck a beam in there.
1: Just hope the city, the inspectors don't
2: show up. Well, there's no inspector. I mean, it's Brooklyn, man. There's no, you know. Really? It's yeah. It's, that's 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 kind of how it is over there. So, let me so so uh, you know, we we did that, and then I was ripping out the 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 ceiling plaster and stuff, and I got to where the light was in the middle of the room, and all the wiring was this real old cloth wiring that was like crumbling and sparking. You know. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Really, real, okay. and um, so I was like, "Oh, let me change this light fixture." So I start unscrewing the light fixture from the ceiling, and as I unscrew the the the, the kind of bolt that's holding it to it, I hear. Psss. What I realize is <laughs> there's still live gas lines from when there was gas lighting in the house, Holy and the shit. landlords at the time when they put electricity in, they just kind of covered screwed it up. Electric- yeah, yeah, they they covered it up. They capped them with these electric with you know with these light sockets that's how they capped them and they put their cloth wiring on there. So it so it's basically like a bomb just like sparking oh, wires and pressurized gas the yeah so i said i could rip all the gas out of the whole house so i shut all the gas lines out and I let them all out you know and then charles tells me that he's going to cook for us all the time he's like man you got to put a gas line in i was like we don't need a gas line we don't need a stove and he says, no you got to put it so we we you know we left the oven upstairs and I ran a whole new gas line up to the oven. And of course, he made us like orange chicken, like once in there. <laughs> you know, I mean, he cooked President's house, but he never cooked it. So we, there was there was a lot of that kind of stuff. So yeah, everybody was chipping him. He did all the he did a lot of the mudding, like the um, plastering and stuff.
1: Speaking of Charles Bradley, just as a random aside, I heard a story that he literally just like showed up at your door one day and like knocked on the door and was like hey I'm Charles Bradley.
2: That's true. Yeah, and that that was before that was well it was obviously before that cuz he was already helping me but um, it was pretty random. Um, at the time I lived in a basement apartment in Williamsburg on South 4th Street and um, yeah, he just came and knocked on my on my on my door and I opened the door and I said um, you know, I didn't know who he was and I said <laughs> hey, can I help you and he said I heard you're looking for singers you know which i mean it wasn't like the word was on the street i wasn't really i was very it was amazing to meet him but i would definitely was not actively looking for singers and i said where'd you get my number and he said um some some drummer had given him uh crazy my number i think he said i don't think it was kenny i think it was some drummer it was but it was somebody i'd never heard of you know <laughs> I, was, I don't even know that guy and well, it wasn't my number it was my address really so i was like i don't even know that guy and who did you give your address to? You know what I mean? Like, who's got your address? You know, it wasn't like sessions at my house or anything. You know, it was like, it was just in my apartment. So I still to this day, can't figure out how Charles Bradley found us. And I'd asked him about it many times. And people have asked him about it. I mean, but nobody, we can't figure it out. But he just showed up my door and said, there's a drummer giving him my address. (laughs) And and we were at the time we were, you know, I I went down to the Tar Heel lounge where he used to sing all the time. He invited me down to see him sing and there was there was another singer there we really like i he called him silver Fox, I can't think of his real name, but he had this beautiful, high, sweet voice mm-hmm. and we wanted him to come sing on on this this record on the on on Sugarman's album on the pure cane sugar record, which we were working on at the time um and he couldn't he wouldn't do it because of sticky bear or some hustler dude that had him it was so, it was a whole scene there okay. i can't i don't but eventually we got um we got Charles to come down and sing, Take It As It Come. And I think that was his I think that was his first recording really. I can't think of anything he would have done before that. So that was probably his first recording. And that was again in a mile, it was basement. Um, it was probably two thousand two or something, two thousand one. Okay. Two thousand even. But the uh, you know, so that was that's kinda how we hooked up with Charles and then Amazing. and then For a long time he would just show up and help us with all kinds of construction stuff, you know.
1: So how long was the process of of moving into the place in Brooklyn and and getting the construction to the point where it was a functional room?
2: I mean, it seemed like forever, but I don't know, it might have been five or six months or something like that. Okay. I mean, it was it was a lot of work. It was real dark time because I just you know, we I couldn't hire anybody, so we're doing it all ourselves and scrapping it by like the way we floated the isolation room in, in there, the way it's floated is we found neighbor, uh, tires in the neighborhood and put tires on the ground. And then we went to some uh, some kind of clothing factory or something, got all their, basically their garbage, all these rags and clippings of cloth. We stuffed all the tires and the whole floor with this, with these cloth.
3: <laughs> High tech. Built
2: a, yeah. And then we built a room off of that that wasn't really touching the house, like a room inside a room, you know? Wicked. And that's the so that's what's in between the control room and the big live room is this kind of decent sized isolation room like that. And I gotta say, man, I've been in a lot of studios over the years. That's the most isolated room I've ever been in. That's wicked. Like more than any of these fancy studios in LA or New York or anything. Like yeah. you can't hear anything. Nothing comes out of that room. It's just you know, and they're hovering on tires. It's pretty cool.
1: In Canada, we use hockey pucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hockey pucks. People use hockey pucks, people use tennis balls. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember what the first thing was that you recorded in there?
2: The first thing we recorded in there, as soon as we were able to record, there's a, there's a producer, dance producer called Kenny Dope, Kenny Dope Gonzalez. And he, he was a, he was a fan and he lent, he, he lent me money to buy a, um, or maybe bought us, bought it for us, really our first tape machine in there, which is, uh, uh, like a big TX sixteen track one inch, mm-hmm. and the first thing we recorded in there was um a cover of I I just came in to see what condition my condition's in Oh yeah just came in to see what, you know, Kenny Rogers one you know yeah we recorded it um, kind of like the uh, the Betty LeVette version. My friend Kev Darge the DJ who'd always been a big supporter from the Desco days and everything who's kind of running the deep funk scene in London at the time he he had some connection and told us that they wanted to use it for Kentucky fried chicken commercial and we were going to get a bunch of money if we could record a version of that. So we recorded a version of that with Sharon. That was the first thing recorded in that house. You know, obviously the, the commercial didn't happen. That money didn't come either, but um, <laughs> you know, we didn't put that record out for years cause I didn't really like it. And I also felt like, Oh, well, we're just doing, we're just copying, you know, Bay LeVette's arrangement. It's not like our own spin on it or something. But people really liked it, so eventually we put it on 45. And a lot of people really liked that record, but uh-huh. that was the first thing we recorded. The first album I think we recorded in there, I believe, was um, Who Is This America? The Antipolis album, okay, which was a an, an, kind of an epic album that had every possible studio trick you could imagine in it. You know, it was just like it was a huge band all recording live, and there was just long songs and these elaborate arrangements, and everybody had concepts about then this song kind of morphs into space and flies through the universe and turns into the other song. And it's like, so I was trying to do that with splicing tape and stuff, you know? So it was a lot of, wow. It was a very involved album. That was like one of the most technical, technically like involved albums I've ever done, you know? So, I mean, not that it was a masterpiece or anything,
1: but. From a studio point of view was the room and stuff like did, when you turn everything on and started recording, was it a glorious thing or did you have to like sit there and like work on the room over and over again and perfect it?
2: Um, well, I don't think it ever got perfected. I mean, I'm still recording there and it's, it's still kind of a, um, it's still kind of a challenge. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, it's, it's, um, I don't know. It's, it's a weird thing, man. It's such a, it's such a home, that place for us, you know, I've been there right. for so long and invested so much and it's, you know, it's something you really built with your hands. So you, you have a certain relationship with it, you know? Yeah. And a certain comfort and stuff. So I mean, I obviously we know our way around the studio real well and I feel like we've made some good, you know, really good sound records in there. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a there's there's definitely a lot of people who think there's I guess that's true in music in general. There's a lot of fetishism. There's people who think there's magic in everything. You know. I remember having a conversation with Mark Ronson once when he was telling me that he thought the linoleum adaptone was magic. And I was banging my head against the wall and I was like, Man, you got like Homer you know you got like one of the greatest drummers around in here you know just crushing your songs and i'm spent here spending like five hours moving a mic one inch this way or that way to try to get it to sound just right and then you think the linoleum is magic you know and, it, <laughs> and it, you know it, it was it was kind of a it was kind of frustrating but you know there's always been some of that and you know we benefit from that too because we could charge people a bunch of money to go record there right but you know at the end of it you know i i have a lot of sentiment for that place but i I don't know if I believe in that kind of magic, you know. I yeah. think that, yeah, I hear You know, that. it's really more about using your ears, and the biggest thing is, 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 you know, if you have good music, you can, you can make a good record, you know. Yeah. The, the technology is very far secondary, you know. Uh-huh. People get real into, you know, tubes and valves and ribbons and all this stuff, and we use some of that stuff, but I never, I never really felt like that was. I mean, like you said, there's been a consistent sound to the stuff we're doing. Yeah, and it's been in a, a lot of different rooms with a lot of different microphones, you know. So it's really not about that, you know. I mean, yeah, from the beginning, it's it always be. been about use whatever you have, you right. know.
1: Five or ten percent of it, but really in the end, it comes down to the the people.
2: Yeah, two percent. Yeah, I mean, if you have yeah, you need you need a good arrangement. You need great musicians. You yeah. need people that have a sound on their instrument and that play the right shit. And, and more importantly than playing the right shit is not playing the wrong shit. You know, <laughs> totally. It, it, it's really and it's, it's 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 hard, you know, especially. You know, especially at the time when I started, like in the 90s, it was the idea of, you know, being in New York and having a, you know, funk band or something. It was very different from this thing we were doing. It was very different. You know, the bass players all had six or seven strings and no frets, and they're all playing chords and slapping. And, you know, the drummers had splash cymbals and were playing reverse upside down paradiddles on their drum stools and at five bass drums you know it wasn't there was no there was Sounds no terrible. discipline in it it, just, it was terrible it was very terrible in fact I started playing bass because I couldn't find a bass player at the time like this is even before the desco days when I was kind of had you know college bands and stuff I had a college band with friends and I always played drums I was a drummer in the band oh okay and um when that band kind of split up I wanted to start another band and I wanted to do this kind of soul band, you know? And I was, so I started kind of like, you know, I put an ad in the village voice and put up flyers again, pre-internet. Yeah. And, um, you know, I started trying to find people and I couldn't find a bass player that sounded good, but I found a drummer. I can't remember the kid's name, but he sounded pretty good. So I was like, Oh, well I could play the bass. That's, you know, especially what I wanted was pretty easy, you know? Right. So, you know, so I bought a bass for like 90 bucks at a pawn shop and, and, and I started playing bass and, you know, I wanted somebody to play doom, 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 you know, I, right. nobody was doing that, you know? Right. right. So anyway, the, the point is a big a big part of it is just kind of like the taste and the discipline of what people are playing. And, and after that, it's like we've recorded some stuff in some pretty, pretty crack ways. Like, yeah, I mean, we used a lot of, a lot of SM57s, but, but sure. even more than that, even worse mics, a lot of Radio Shack mics at the beginning.
1: You rave about those Radio Shack mics in the early days.
2: Yeah yeah and I, and we still use some of that stuff sometimes man. We, we, you know, you know the the thing to me about equipment is you have to shoot it out blind and if you do that that's the only way you can be honest with yourself about what something sounds like because right. otherwise you think you're listening but you're not. You're thinking about what you read in mix magazine or what you know Tony Albini used and what Marvin Gaye sang into. You think about all this stuff that has nothing to do with what you're hearing. Right. You know, yeah. or how much you paid or how much you didn't pay. Yeah. Or you know you know, you don't want to feel like a schlub because you spent five hundred dollars on a microphone, so you want that to sound better. Or maybe you're being contrary and you want the cheap one to sound better. Whatever it is, you have all these feelings and thoughts that have nothing to do with what you're hearing. Right. So, like what we've what we've done for years with everything, you know, whether it's a compressor or a microphone or anything, is is do it blind. You you know, you plug into the board and you cross it up in the patch base. You don't know which one's which, or you have have your friends sit at the console and pull up one one fader and the other. Yeah. And you say, you know, which one do you like? Do you like, you know, Larry, Moe, or Curly? Right. You know? Yeah. And you sit there. And when you don't know which they are, and the in the first tendency of everybody in that situation is they're trying to guess which one's which. Oh, well the Neumann is Curly, right? I mean I can tell because of this. And mm-hmm. that one's just stop thinking you know, you stop stop trying to guess anything. Just listen, you know, and it's it's not a you know, it's it's not a quiz, it's a it's a question. You know, it's like what actually sounds better, you know? And when you think about it that way and you just and you just kind of relax your mind, close your eyes, and just listen, you hear very obvious things that you wouldn't normally hear, you know? And sometimes the, you know, the Radio Shack mic beats the $10,000 Neumann mic, and sometimes the Neumann mic wins, and a lot of times the SM57 wins, you know? And sure, over the years, you have mics that just keep winning, and you tend to grab those first, right. but the important thing is that you keep checking, you yeah, know, keep checking yeah. and, and trying things, and, you know, so we never really you know we we never really had that much go-to stuff. There's stuff that, you know, there's definitely mics that we used more and things that 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 get a lot of mileage and
1: What are some of the highlights like some of the real things that that you always go for?
2: Um, I usually plug my bass in direct. Okay. That's that's one of the few things that we always go for, but even then we try we try amp sometimes and once sometimes we use amp. Uh-huh. But like the mics on the drums is a good one. Like we we usually use one mic yep. when we can. not Sometimes we use more. We try in different places, and sometimes they end up overhead. Sometimes they end up on the ground in a sock next to the bass drum. Sometimes they're behind the drummer's head or behind the stool. You know? Do you
1: still go for dynamic mics for that kind of thing?
2: Uh, no, we use condensers. Sometimes we use a lot. Of, I use ribbons a lot. Yeah, I use a lot of ribbons. We have like we have this one um rca 77 that i like a lot that we use on we use on drums a lot we had that one that somebody would stolen from somewhere and left at our studio or i don't know how we got it we definitely didn't buy that one um but i didn't steal it just to be clear for the record yeah i don't i don't i'm not a stealer but the um you know at some point somebody was selling one and we saved up and i i got another one because i thought oh this mic's so cool the other one sounds totally different and then i go to other studios like somebody hired me to go do sounds at some studio you know and and you pull theirs out and they all every mic sounds different you know i mean the only thing that's consistent really to me is like a
0: 57 as a person with a very deep voice i'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns but a deep voice doesn't sell b2b and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell b2b either that's why if you're a b2b marketer you should use linkedin ads linkedin has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint
0: Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation,
1: we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
2: Sometimes new mics off the shelf, they can be consistent, but you talk about old mics, people are like, oh, a 77 sounds like this and a 44 sounds like that. It's like, well, which one, you know, that's like saying Mexicans are good singers, you know, it's like, no, (laughs) some of them might be, but you got to try out each Mexican to see which one can actually sing, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's it's you can't really say like one model of microphone has a certain sound yeah. when, you're, when, you're, especially when you talk about old gear
1: right of course you know? yeah what about the console at um at daptone was that something that changed over the years or did you have one that you've just stuck with
2: yeah well we've we've had the one that we've had for a lot of years and that we've stuck with for a long time is a um it's a trident 65 mm-hmm. and uh i got the same the same thing out here in california mixy studio here so we it, it's um you know, and it's not that, it, you know, a lot of people think oh, it's a it's a great board. It's like, it's not really a great board. It's kind of what you can afford. It was, it, you know, it's a strange price point, you know what I mean? Where you're kind of like, well, we can spend, you know, a thousand bucks, we can spend 1500 bucks, but we can't spend 15,000 bucks. There's yeah. very little, there's very little mixing board wise between like 500 bucks and like 20,000. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's basically, you go straight from like Mackies and Behringer's to like, you know, neves and APIs and stuff that like I'll never afford, you know? Right. So there's not that much in the middle. And I found the Trident 65 is kind of that just barely professional board. that I could afford <laughs> like the one I wanted was like a Trident 70, you know, the 80 B is, the, is, is a good one. Obviously there's the A range and these really fancy ones, but the 80 B was kind of a real standard one and they got great EQs and stuff. So that's kind of what I wanted. I couldn't really afford it. So 65 was kind of the one that I could afford, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And, you know, there's lots of transistors and shit in there. And the, the preamps are terrible. The preamps are, you know, just just noisy. And there's, I mean, you can record a guitar through them, but very little else. You okay. know, like, you turn them and they're, you know, it's all crackly. and stuff. But the EQs are real cool. I really like the EQs in those boards. Uh-huh. And they're real functional the way that they have, you know, there's split consoles. I almost always, like, I like split consoles. I can wrap my head around them more. And even when I don't have a split console, I usually... Use a sp- console like a split console. You know, I will use, you know, board in New York is is I mean, what well, big? It's relatively big. You know, it's twenty four channels, twenty four by eight by by sixteen. The one I have out here is sixteen by four by eight or something. Mm-hmm. But what we'll do in New York is like the, the top eight channels on the right. We just use those for tape returns because we're, right. we're doing eight recording anyway. So we just use those for tape returns. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And if we need to send stuff to tape or headphones or something, we use the left side of the board. We put the, the broken channels all the way in the left and then somewhere <laughs> in the middle you have, you, have, you know, we're trying to use the rest, you know, but,
1: uh, do you find with, with, with some of that stuff you get hung up with like maintenance and all that bullshit or, or do you have somebody that can do, take care of that stuff for you? Or,
2: well, you know, we, we've been for years, uh, I went to school with uh, a couple guys that, that ended up, very techy and stuff. Like I went to school with a guy named Andrew Roberts that runs Purple Audio, uh-huh. and um, that's a great company. Yeah, yeah, and 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 also Matt Marinelli, who's an unbelievable tech and engineer, um, and you know has, has Coral Audio and a bunch of other stuff. So Matt usually fixes this stuff for us. And but you know I bought another. I mean the the one I have adapted on the console. I think we paid was it thirteen hundred dollars? I think it must maybe been thirteen hundred dollars for that and a tape machine or something, mm-hmm. something like that. And then the one out here I got for about, I can't remember what I paid, 500 bucks or something. But then a couple years later, I found another one for sale on Craigslist, kind of busted up yeah. for, a, for a few hundred bucks. Um, another small one. So what I did was I got that one. I just used it as spare. Parts. Spare channels. Yeah, because you just pull the channels out. And the ones here and the ones in New York are all interchangeable, other than this being four bus and that being eight bus. Yeah. You know, it's less bus buttons. But so we, we just kind of, just always kind of have spares in the shop and just kind of switch them out constantly, you know. So we don't have to fix them. I mean, we fix them a little bit, but you know, I'm not great with that stuff, you know. Like yeah. I can, it, you know, there's a lot of, um, like I said, it's not super high quality boards. There's a lot of chips in it that you can just pull out and swap back in without even having to figure out if they're broken, you know. that's cheap, right? You know, so we do yeah. that. But I've had some different boards over the years. Um, out here for a minute, I had a Toft console.
3: Yeah,
1: how did that work for you?
2: You know, the it was kind of half amazing, like the. The preamps were so much better than, than my Trident 65. You know, uh-huh. the preamps were great, very beautiful and usable. And obviously it was kind of, it was new. So, it you know, in some level it worked. Um, the EQs were great, but the right half of the board was real cheap. Oh. And I think I kind of get it because it's the same thing. They're trying to hit this kind of odd price point, you know? Right. It's like you can only you know, if you're not going to spend thousand, thousand dollars, you can only have so much quality. And I think they kind of focused on what they felt most people really want, which is true, which is like the preamps, the left side of the board, like the pre the input channels. Yeah. I do a lot of like grouping stuff together. I do a lot of that where it's like, maybe I'll get, you know, maybe I'll get the drums and the horns and the background vocals and pan them all hard left, but I'll, I'll put them in one group and then compress them and EQ them as one sound just in the left speaker. You know, I'll do weird stuff like that. And you need, you need your groups and oxes. You need all that stuff working. You know, right, right. That stuff just—I couldn't hang with it on that board. At one point, smoke came out of the right side of that board. <laughs> you know, and they—they they were very good about fixing it and stuff. So I—I I actually ended up giving it to to Joey, who's using it now to you know, from the DAP Kings, who's using it now to to make great sounding recordings. Oh, cool. He's, he's in New York now. He had it in Staten Island now. It's in Brooklyn. Yeah. So that's a—I mean, it's a great board, but you know, like I would definitely endorse that board for somebody that's looking for. You know, a really, really reasonably priced board with great EQs and preamps. It's just for what I needed. I needed more functionality out of the out of the kind of master section and the group section, and all that. You know.
1: Can you tell me a bit about like I, I find that really interesting. The whole idea of like just like grouping huge amounts of stuff together. I always find like a you know one track of a console could respond really well to like. Yeah, like a full drum kit and a bass and stuff like that. Is that, like, do you find that, is that an aesthetic choice or is it just purely functionality? Like you're just dealing with a minimal amount of tracks and you have to shove stuff onto one track?
2: Um, You know, I do it more in mixing than tracking. We do it in tracking sometimes, Mm -hmm. but really for the most part when we're tracking, like, for example, drums... Like a lot of people are like, oh, you got to bust all the drums together, but we're mostly using one mic. Like sometimes right. we use two mics, and in, in that case, we do. Yeah, we do use a bus to bust them both together. And like if if we have two mics on the drums, yeah, it's good to bust them together and then kind of insert any cue if you're trying to cue them or or a, you know a compressor or whatever whatever you're trying to do to them. I like the tape to sound as good as possible, so mm-hmm. if somebody just pulls up the fader, it sounds like a record, you know. Yeah, yeah, but. A, a lot of that buzzing stuff is unnecessary because like horns, for example, same thing. Like you just put up one mic and you're blending the horns, you know, the guys in the room are, you know, again, it comes down to the musicians like, well, you got to get a great horn section. That's not even like guys that are virtuosos or, you know, it's not about individuals. It's about guys that have played together and have a sound together and have a way of breathing together and phrasing and vibrating together, you know, yeah, guys that have been on the road for years smelling each other, totally. you know, there's a the sound to that, you know, and you can't replace that. Like, there's not like you can pop one Brecker brother in there and all of a sudden it's going to be better. It's going to be weirder, you know. Like there's, you know, I mean, they got it. They all have to, you know, vibe together. And that's so that's
1: yeah. They have to be one instrument instead of
2: it. Really is related because it's you know that's that's how that's why you can record a horn section with one microphone is because they have a sound as a horn section, you know. And um, a lot of those things, I think, it's weird because when you're in the studio and people aren't used to working that way, they look at it as this real almost like this kind of brave, bold commitment, you know, to, to put three horns on one microphone, but it's a much simpler way to do. I mean, eventually you have to, you have to mix the horns at some point, right? Like, yeah, it seems like if you can't, if you're sitting in the room and they're playing the bridge, and the third, you know, the, the third on the saxophone is too loud, or the trumpet is a little flat, or you know, something's weird in the tone. Like if you don't hear it, then like you're not going to hear it when you're mixing. It's not like a, it's not like I get I'm going to go hire some smarter people to come check it out later on. You know, like you know, so so you still have to make those decisions, but you make it while you're tracking. And right. I think right now people tend to really rush tracking. They rush sounds and performances.
1: Because there's so many options after the fact.
2: They, yeah, they just figure we got, it's all about we got what we need. You know, it's just kind of like, well, you do 10 takes, and later on we'll figure out what was good and what wasn't, you know? and so I mean, to me, that's the whole thing about the tape and the 8-track. And I'm sorry, I'm all kind of all over the place here. But no, it's good. Yeah, it's great. Sure you'll stop me if you need to. But, you know, the thing about tape and 8-track is, you know, people get very obsessed with, analog technology and di- you know digital's wrong because the way it tracks transients and it does you know analog has these compressions and you know, everybody gets really deep into the technical part of it but to me you know i mean I, I think that there's truth to those things but those are very small details very small details the the, the huge difference to me is the process yes you know which is that like you have one track right you know to record your horn section um, and that that forces you to sit there and figure out how the song's supposed to go with the musicians in the studio while you're doing the recording, as opposed to later on. Yeah. You know, you have to figure out the blend. You have to figure out what they're going to play on the bridge. You know, when you when you when you're cutting something with a singer, um, you know, if the first chorus is better than the second chorus, you record the second chorus again. You know. Yeah. I often bring it up as the example of like a saxophone player going in. You, you, you have enough isolation so you can overdub stuff and you could say, oh let's let's go to record the saxophone solo again. But they know they're recording over the old one. So it's not the same thing as being in a in a digital studio where there's not it's not just that there's undo. It's just everybody assumes you're keeping all these tracks. nobody likes to throw anything out. and they figure, oh, you'll take the best note for this and that, and if I don't play something better, I know I have the other one. you know, but when you go into the studio and you're thinking, I'm recording over everything I played before, the only thing left on this record is what happens right now. There's there's um, a different feeling in the, yeah. in, in the you know, the player plays with different feeling, their balls and their guts and their, their hairs in their neck. You know, it's like, it's a performance and they put something into it. You know, they're, they, it, it's a different mindset. And some musicians can do that all the time. There's no big difference. But I, I just feel like as far as the musicians and the engineers and whoever's do it working in charge of arranging it and the songwriting, everything has to be, at a higher level, mostly the musicianship, but everything has to be at a higher level. You know, the way that you're blending stuff and the way you're putting stuff together, because we do splices, we splice takes together and we do overdubs and, yeah. you know, we fix things. It's not like, you know, recording live to a, a wax cylinder or something, but but there's a sense of, of commitment permanence. that requires, yeah, permanence uh, that requires, you know, there's a, there's a sense of recording a performance, you know, and there's a sense of, Knowing what you're doing because that's that's what's on the what you're doing is what's on the record. Right, right. And uh, I love that. Or, yeah, I've been in such where I've been hired as a bass player, guitar player, or something. You come in, and the producer's like, "Oh, we're gonna play this, play that." And you're just kind of barely getting the head around how the song goes and and trying out different things and trying to hear what the producers hear and you know, doing you do a few takes. You know, and, and then and they say, okay, cool, I think we got it. And you're just, and I'm just like, what? Like, we never, <laughs> you know, and it, it, it it's just constantly the sense, of, oh, we got what we need. We're going to, you know, we can fix that up later, you know? Ew. Like, and it's, yeah, it's, it is a little bit ew, you know? So, yeah. but to me, that's, for some reason, that's, that's not really in the front of people's minds. Partly, I think, because I think people associate, when they say analog recording, most people are thinking about 24-track tape. And even now, like, the way that people are using tape is they they use it as a sound effect, you know? They right. record to it, and then they and then they dump it into the computer and finish the record. Or they record the computer, and they just dump it to tape for a second and dump it back. Like They use it as a sound. Yeah. They aren't using it as a process, you know? Yeah. And it's real different 24-track tape and 16-track or 8-track, you know? Huge difference. And that's why, we, yeah, we moved, you know, because when I started recording, I was doing 4-track, and then we got an 8-track, and I was pretty excited. And then we moved up to 16-track for a couple of years, and then I moved back to 8-track, you know, because I just felt like, 16 track was too much you know yeah i get it yeah because somebody'd say hey you got it you got a free track let me do another one right you you know with eight track you rarely can say yes to that sometimes you can but you 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 can pretty much honestly say most of the time sorry i don't have another track yeah it's on you to sing this shit right now this is it this is what's on the record you know and that's that's a different different thing and you can't do that with anybody you got to have the right you know, musicians and singers and stuff to do that.
1: Could you just kind of take me through your process then with, say, something kind of like mid-era mid, mid era of, like, Sharon's career, like I Learned the Hard Way or something, which is a, you know, that's a great-sounding record. And how much of that would have been done all live, everyone in performing together? Uh, would Sharon have recorded her vocals live with the band, or do you sit down with Sharon and, like, work through the song? Like, what was your process like at that point?
2: Um, well, I think a big part of it has to do with with Sharon and her way of her process for learning songs, which was, you know, admittedly, especially around that time, pretty difficult. She got to a point where she didn't want to (laughs) hear, she didn't want people telling her how to sing. You know what I mean? She was like, I'm a a soul singer. You're not a soul singer, you know? And it was like, like, well, yeah, Sharon, but you're not a songwriter. You want us to write songs for you. We have to tell you how they go. And, And, you know, some guys, you know, Binky and some of the other guys that were better singers and stuff were able to, you know, she kind of was able to, to, to pick up on the songs and stuff better. I think Tommy is a, but me, I've always been a terrible, terrible singer and everything comes out of my mouth sounds bad, which I always <laughs> told Sharon, I was like, man, that's what you, you should be happy about that. That's why you got a job, you know? But, um, you know, it was, it, we always had this very, you know, it was, it, it just drove me nuts for years that we'd have this divide where I'd write a song for her and I I knew what it was supposed to sound like, but yeah. I couldn't. I couldn't get her to, um, it was very hard to get her to like sing it, you know? So she would always be kind of like poo-pooing it and winching up her face and she didn't like it and stuff. And then eventually I'd, I'd, you know, drag it out of her and she'd have it on tape and then we'd go do it live and she'd get real into it. And, you know, not all of them, but most of the time she'd end up really owning those songs. And They you were writing the bulk of her material, right? Well, the, you know, it, it, the first the first record I pretty much wrote the first record. Yeah. The second record had, you know, it was basically as as the band went on, um, it became the first record was even mm-hmm. though it was all friends and family and people worked together, you know, I had a budget and I kind of hired everybody as side musicians, so I kind of wrote a record and then hired these guys to come in and play it. Uh-huh. That's kind of how the first record was, but then we started touring. We became a band, and everybody's listening to the same Isley Brothers tapes in the van and stuff. So mm-hmm. everybody kind of got into it and. And um, so everybody started writing more and more. And I think, you know, this, this second record had a little bit more contributions from, you know, Homer and Tommy wrote a, a, to- a song or two. And then, you know, in the third record, and the, you know, as as the records went on, more and more people write them. But mm-hmm. by the time we got to like, the, like this last Soul of a Woman record, you know, I don't know what I wrote on that record. You know, 10 percent, 20 percent. I mean, it was really the band everybody was writing. It was really I, a lot of times I get credit for being like the songwriter in that band, which is mm, not not true i yeah, mean I it, at the beginning it was yeah but you know i'm, I'm definitely I, I think i'm definitely the band leader of that band and, which is not not as much about telling people what to do is it's just kind of more about listening to everybody and kind of getting yeah keep trying to keep things moving the same direction you know it's not i think that's that's it's one of that's a separate conversation yeah. but but the point the point is because of that process with the song a lot of times her vocals wouldn't be live. There was some of her recordings that her vocals were live with us, Mm -hmm. but a lot of it, they weren't live. I mean, a lot of times she'd be singing with us, but it would end up being a scratch. So a lot of times we would put her in the isolation room, okay, and then there'd be usually drums, bass, two guitars, and and percussion live. A lot of times percussion wasn't live just because Ferdando had to work or take care of a kid or something, so he'd come later. But when possible, we would do it all live. Sometimes the piano would be live. Horns would be live once in a while, but usually overdubbed. Okay. And um, so we'd usually, you know, do that. And then, you know, Victor sometimes do keyboards. Sometimes it'd be live. A lot of times in the studio, too, we're switching places. Like, Binky played great bass on a lot of records, and I play guitar on some stuff. Oh, really? I didn't realize that. Yeah, sometimes, you know, sometimes, some, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's like, because of the way that we approach music, it's not, you don't necessarily need to be a virtuoso. You need to have your rhythm right, and you need to be playing the right shit. But, like... Like I played piano on a bunch of those records, and and it's not—I mean, I guess it's kind of braggadocious, but it's like not really that I was killing it, you know. It's more really that I was that what needed to be played was what I could play, right. you know. Yeah. So it, you know, and, and you know, same thing with guitar. Like, I can I can play a chank on a record, you know. Yeah. And, And, um, so, so there's definitely some switching around on, on records times where different people are sitting at the drums and everything, you know?
1: And how involved are you in, in, in like working out people's parts and stuff? Like, are you getting right in there and being like, no, you got to simplify that. You got to, or do you find just everyone's so dialed into the sound of what you were going for that, that you were just able to?
2: Yeah. Well, initially I, I think it's the same. It's a similar answer. Initially, like the first record, I think I was telling everybody what to play, um, not that they didn't come up with some stuff, but it was like I had the horn lines, I had the guitar parts and stuff, and people came up with a couple little things. But then, like by the second record, everybody's contributing, you know. For me, in particular, a lot of times, like I'll write something really soup to nuts, like really have it arranged, like before the band ever hears it, I have like string parts and Everything. trumpet, you know, yeah. horn parts and stuff. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily our best stuff, but there's definitely songs and st- there's songs like like the song I learned the hard way is like that. Like I kind of had a demo that had almost everything in it you know a lot of stuff to me where the dap Kings sound the best is the stuff that's a lot more collaborative mm-hmm. where it's like a, a lot of guys in the band maybe they had they write a song but they don't necessarily have all the parts and they come in and then we come up with the other parts but i think that part of the process is kind of interesting because that's another thing that i feel is kind of unique within our family is um just that vibe of being in the room with the dap kings working on a song it's pretty it's 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 collaborative but it's there's something um very different there's really no bullshitting right. if somebody plays something and somebody says man I, you know that chord sounds cheesy to me i mean they'll they'll everybody just tears into each other you know <laughs> it's like you know everybody's busting balls all the time so it's like if somebody plays something that's even at all questionable or whack or you know like why 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 did you hit the symbol in the middle of the verse dude you know yeah. like you know how drummers will do that shit where they every four bars they play a fill yeah, like, I do know that. If, yeah, if somebody did that in the studio, in our studio, everybody would just stop and look at them like, what are you doing, you <laughs> asshole? Why are you doing that? Like, why would you do that? You know, like, there's a lot of that. And when you go back and listen to a take, you know, nobody's, there's there's really none of this kiss-ass bullshit that you see in most studios where everybody's just kind of like, yeah, man, that was magic, man, you sound great. You know, it's just none of that. It's just kind of like, if somebody, something sounds good, somebody will be like, yeah, man, that was dope. But for the most part, it's like, everybody tearing everybody apart the whole time, you know? Right. And, the, and that's how those arrangements come together. It's, it's like, like a family. Yeah. And sometimes people have ideas and, you know, what, what if you do it this way? No, no, I want to do it that way. Well, what if he does it this way? Well, what if he does it every other time? No, don't do it every other time. That's a, you know, that's bullshit compromise. You could do, do this, you know, and you have these, and you fight it out about whether, and, and it could be minute things. It's like, for example, a chank, you know, mm-hmm. dun, chank, dun, dun, chank, like just a chank on a guitar. Like, You could play it up or you could play it down. You could play on this pickup or that pickup. You could play this inversion or you could play that inversion. And those tiny details, sometimes we get pulled into them. And there's seven guys arguing on whether the guitar player's pick should go one direction or the other (laughs) direction. I mean...
1: I can totally imagine that.
2: Nothing's off the table. And the important thing is that it's all driven by the idea of everybody just wanting to make a record that feels cool. Yes. It has nothing to do with anybody's ego or what anybody's capable of or what somebody else did or what you think people want to hear or what's going to sell.
1: So a lot of the time you'd be doing this, Sharon would lay down a scratch vocal. And then as you mentioned, like she was sort of, it was a bit of push and pull with her, like working on new material. Was was that a hard process getting her to, be comfortable with the song enough to sing it
2: and and like you know at the at the beginning it was easy the beginning she would just kind of i would just tell her you know i'd sing she would just sing whatever i told her to sing you know and you hear it's a different she's a different kind of singer when you listen to like um dap dip and it's beautiful but it's same as a lot of singers where their early stuff has a certain effortless kind of naivete to it where there's really no there's almost they're just not self-possessed at all it's just kind of like well you want me to sing i'm gonna sing and there's no sense of like you know I'm a singer, and this is this is who I am you know and and then as that evolved, she got to be to me a greater and greater singer over the years, especially live man like by by the end, even right before she died, the way she pardon me, the way she was singing man when we do these sh- these la- those last few shows was unbelievable man. she was just singing her ass off, just sounded so good. I just rewatched the movie, and it it's true man she was on yeah another, on she another was level. she was on fire, she was on fire. But you know it, again, also she was more invested in herself as you know as as a as a person as a singer as a celebrity as a as you know all these things so it was she she had to find her way through you know defining herself and kind of having pride and kind of make like the jo- the, the journey to making it her song right you know yeah was was some sometimes i think we'd we'd struggle with that together you know yeah. but um towards the end like the last couple records it kind of got easier again she kind of got I think partly was getting sick but she 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 to me got a you know she was crazy Sharon was fucking out of her mind man she was crazy she was built from I don't know what she was made out of something that nobody else was made out of you know I mean you talk about that forever never really words don't really describe what you know yeah where she was coming from she was made out of some kind of cosmic dust or something but um after she got sick, I think after that first leave leave of absence, she came back with um, a different kind of maturity—not like an old lady kind of maturity, but just kind of like a certain humility and a certain perspective that I don't think she had up to that point.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And and she—I mean, she came to the stage and the studio after that with such a sense of purpose, you know. And I mean, she never had a problem being in the present, Sharon. I mean, she was always in the moment, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, she she was, you know, uh, totally engaged in in life in the deepest way in every moment. But you, uh, you know, at that point, somehow she was able to, um, I don't know, man, there's certain humility or something about it. She she just sang every night like it was the last night she was ever going to sing. I mean, she sang like that before she got sick. Mm -hmm. But, you know, after she got sick, there was There was just it just kind of cut a lot of the noise down, a lot of the bullshit that hung her up, you know, just backstage and travel, just details, just little things that would get on her nerves. She let that kind of stuff go a little bit. She stopped complaining about petty stuff, you know. I mean, Mm -hmm. she just kind of let a lot of the petty stuff go and just focused on just being happy to be with. She just loved being with us, man, in the studio. She loved she loved it, and we all did, man. Just being in that house together and eating takeout and smoking weed and talking shit on each other just like hanging out you yeah. know just like being family and she loved she loved the band she loved everybody man. Oh, man you know she just wanted to be with us in the van or whatever yeah you know and she would get up, she'd get upset when when there was any kind of fracture in that when somebody was mad or somebody didn't want to go go somewhere with us or something she you know it would upset her you know yeah so she's got into just loving being together with us and loving connecting with The fans and love and sing you know she's really focused on what was important you know
1: you guys as a unit and as a band and like that whole concept was so strong did was it an easy thing for you to flip around and back other people up like your work with charles bradley or lee fields or amy winehouse like was that a a a leap at all like bringing other people into that fold or or was it easy
2: well it's it's i mean those those are all different people you know and they're totally different like lee fields i worked with before sharon so, yeah, Lee Fields is, is, a, is totally different to work with than, than, than Sharon. Just the way that he approaches music and how he sings, you know, they have totally different strengths and styles in the studio, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, Winehouse is a different thing because it wasn't really our record. Like Mark Ronson came in and he wanted us to hook it, him up. So we kind of recorded the music for him and hooked up the arrangements. and you know. But, you know, I worked on Amy Winehouse for a handful of days, you know.
1: Just as a, as a player, basically, or...?
2: Well, I I, I didn't really... Pl- I don't think I played on any of her records. I hired... I didn't want to play bass and engineer at the same time for those sessions, so I hired Nick. Oh, okay. Uh, he's a great bass player and, and who always played with, you know, Homer since I started recording them as the Mighty Imperials when they were 15. But, yeah. you know, he, he plays with Leon and he plays with he, he played with Andy Balls for a while. You know, he's, he's an unbelievable bass player. So I hired Nick Movshan to come in and, um, on that session... For the Winehouse one, just so I could just concentrate on kind of engineering and making sure shit was going right. and I didn't have to be on both sides of the glass at the same time, you know, because right. I didn't have any assistant or anything at that time.
1: On a record like that, like it, you know, it comes across sounding kind of ultra modern in a way, like it's got your stamp all over it. But like the kick drum all of a sudden doesn't sound like a Dapking's kick drum. Uh, were you was were things being augmented like after the fact or or was did you just shift what you did?
2: Well, I mean the, the way it worked was he he Mark came to us with Amy's demos and stuff and we record I think we did like six tracks or something on that on that Back to Black record. Yeah. And um we did we put the music down and she came and sang on some stuff. I don't think she sang on those tracks. She sang on like Valerie and some other stuff that we did with her, she came in and sang maybe live, but most of the stuff, then he would take the tracks. And I don't know what the hell he did with them. You know I mean? he. <laughs> I don't know if he was adding, you know, cause that's once you hit the pop world, who knows what the hell they're doing. You know, they get some mixers using beat replacer to, you know,
1: it kind of sounds like that. I mean, it's the feels there, but
2: subsonic thing under the kick drum or something, you know? Yeah. And you know, they, they did like orchestral overdubs other places. And, okay. you know, I think all her vocals on, at least on that record, it were done other places, you know? So they, they they kinda of took what we had as kind of the um the raw materials. Like that we kinda of laid down the foundation.
3: Yeah.
2: You know? And um you know, a lot of the arrangements, you know, there's a lot of stuff on that on that rec- you know, guys are still bitter over it. You know, I wrote that horn line bah, nah, bah, bah. you know, that's Dave Guy, the trumpet players that I came up with that, which is true, you know, or you know, Victor but, but it's you know, you're hired to do a session, you do the session, you know, yeah. you can't you can't get so hung up on that stuff, but yeah. whatever. I mean, the idea is that we we basically hooked up the music for 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 him, and we were kind of an element in what he was able to do. And you know, maybe the, the reason why he was so successful is that the way that he was able to kind of marry the rawness and the realness of what we were doing right. with these pop elements, you yeah. know, to, and that record was able to cross over in this big way or something. You know, I don't know. I mean, I I usually feel like I'm whenever I try to answer any anything about about that kind of thing i'm i'm on i'm just not qualified (laughs) i'm not the guy to ask i mean i didn't listen to radio man this shit doesn't make sense to me you know so i don't know i love it i I don't know how you know i mean i don't know i don't know what's on that record or how they did it really i know what we you know i know what we do yeah and i know that that he was he's great producer to work with you know after that you know he used those guys i mean nick was just recording with him even even last week they were out here in Malibu working on some Ronson and stuff. But okay. use those guys all the time for everybody's records, you
3: yeah.
2: know, yeah. Lady Gaga and <laughs> Gaga. whoever else. You know? <laughs> the guy they hired him to produce, and he and he brings those guys in, man. You know, that's his that's his crew.
1: So you're out in California now full time, and that's there's two studios going now. Is that what's happening?
2: Yeah, well, I, I'm out here in Riverside, um, where I grew up. Uh, you know, I was in New York for a long time, and started having kids and moved back out here. So I have like a, a mixing studio out here, okay. And and I have my mixing studio is in this big old brick building. It used to be a YMCA,
3: cool.
2: And it's like this art center now. And my uh, so uh, four times, basically once a year for the last four four or five years, we've um, kind of took over this big room in the place and run a snake down and, and done, done recordings out here. So for the most part, we record in New York and mix out here. Okay. You know. The Daptown records we've done out here is pretty m- mostly just the James Hunters, so the last three James Hunter records.
1: Oh, you did those there? Um,
2: we did those here, yeah. And to me, the room out here is amazing. Like, those are my favorite recordings as far as stuff that I've done.
1: Those sound amazing, yeah.
2: Yeah, well, it's it's this huge room. It's like my landlord, the guy who owns a building, has this room that I think originally was a racquetball court on the roof. It's got these huge ceilings. It's really high. And um, it's his apartment. So in order to record there... I basically give him money to go on vacation. Right. And then we move all his furniture out of his apartment. We take a picture so we know where it's at. Move all his furniture out of his apartment and we bring in um, carpets and put moving blankets on the walls and office dividers and it's recall. Move a piano and move a piano in there and we move in Oregon, and, you know, and then we run, run wires down the hall, like two hallways. It's about 200 feet away from my, my mixing room. Wow. You know, so we use the mixing room as a control room and we record in there. And, and uh, it's just a beautiful sounding room. But, um, you know, again, like those Hunter records, those are really live. I mean, he sang, like that last Hunter record, he didn't overdub a single. I mean, he overdubbed harmonies, but he didn't, you know, the lead vocals are all live. It's
1: all right off the floor, you know?
2: yeah, yeah. And again, it goes back to him writing great songs yeah. and being able to sing them. Yeah. You know what I mean? If, like, if you have a band that can play like that, you know, yeah, you sit there and you work on the arrangements and you try to get the right take. And at the end of it, <clears throat> you end up doing a lot of splices, to get the, just you know get everything just how you want it, you're recording something that actually happened. So, it's not really a production miracle, you know what right. I mean? It's you're it's more with, of, of yeah hard work with with people that know what they're doing, man. You know, people that yeah. sound good.
1: Your essay or whatever it's called, "Shitty is Pretty." That was a huge thing for me. I love that reading that. Uh, Piece. Yeah. I don't even know what you wrote it for. I just found it on the internet, like quite a while, like when I was kind of starting out.
2: Yeah, that was for Big Big Daddy magazine. Okay, it was this kind of like soul and funk magazine.
1: Like, I mean, I wasn't even making funk records, but I was starting to make records. But so much of that resonated with me. Just like I don't know, like sense of humor and like just what not to play. Uh, you know, tone yeah. and taste and all that stuff. I, I was so fascinated by that, and I think everybody should read it. Um,
2: yeah, I mean, I, I tell you the thing to me about that article is I can't believe that people bring it up all the time. And I feel like it was, um, I mean, I, again, like I didn't really know what the hell I was talking about. I mean, <laughs> like I still probably have the same kind of attitude and a lot of the same philosophy to, towards recording, but I didn't, I, I didn't know what I was doing then, you know, not that I know what I'm doing now either, but, um, yeah, it definitely resonated with a lot of people. And I think it's, you know, again, I think it's just kind of the idea that you don't have to do stuff the way that people want you to, you know it just this kind of a sense of freedom and yeah and and quality you know freedom from a lot of the, the judgments and pressures that people put on themselves in making music and and making other things too you know yeah the idea that things have to be a certain way you know so i i, I think i think that uh it's still it's still pretty much a big part of, of what helps us do stuff is just kind of trying crazy shit, you know?
1: Yeah, well, I just found, yeah. like, reading it, you know, I I don't know, probably 15 years ago, I read it, and, and I reread it, you know, last week when I knew I was going to talk to you, and I, I found, like, mm. so many of the things that you said actually stuck with me, whereas, like, you know, I've read countless other articles and shit that have totally vanished out of my brain, but so much of that stuck with me that I still kind of, like... I bring up to myself all the time. I'm just like that. Well, that, you know, I'll go back and read that shitty is pretty article and see what, see what he said about <laughs> that. But anyway, I just found yes. that fascinating and, and I don't know if you'll ever do something like that again, but.
2: Well, thank you, man. It's, it, I mean, it's flattering that anybody, that, that you know, I, I can't believe that, that article doesn't go away. So it's, <laughs> it's, that's cool. But, uh. Well, I mean, there's a lot of things like now, like I, I was doing our, our uh, interview for like a, uh, some, I'm not going to say which one, but some trade magazine, recording type magazine thing. Mm-hmm. And they said, uh, they were kept asking me these questions about gear. And I was like, man, like, if you, you know, I kept telling them like, man, don't, I don't really want to support that kind of thing. You know, that kind of thinking with these kids out here reading some magazine think, oh, I like this record. I got to go buy this thing. And it's like. It's just not a good way to approach stuff. Like, totally. you got to use whatever you got. You know, that's what I and love. And I about said, that. if you really want, and I said, if you really want a tip about gear, the best tip I can give you is um, the Guitar Center has like this return policy. It's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's true, and it's what I I, it's, I use it like crazy, man. Yeah, you know, that's how we did the Hunter record. You know, just try shit like, out a lot. You you, know, you just go out there. Oh, we need. You say, oh, I need an acoustic guitar. I need a, a, I need an amp. You know, we knew we needed a talkback speaker for the other. Whatever we do, we make a list of stuff. We go over there, spend like three grand. Tell them what I'm using it for. Say, I'm using it for a session. I'll be back in a week. Yeah. And you use it all of it, and then you go bring it back. And that, to me, is like, you know, that piece of information is so much more valuable than like, oh, the RE7-3 is, you know, right. it's a better frequency response than the RE7-4. It's like, if for some kid out there trying to make a record, like, you know, use what you want, use what you can, here's here's a tip, you can go over here, spend zero money, and use whatever gear they got in there, you know, I mean, like, I was talking about Dare, the studio in Long Island, we recorded, like, the doctoris and all the stuff that was, like, people thought was from Nigeria, and I was, man, we're using heavy metal, we're using, like, Kramer guitars, using whatever they (laughs) had in that studio, we didn't even bring our own guitars to the studio, you know what I mean, the drums were, it was all heavy, it was a heavy metal rehearsal studio, Holy shit,
1: that's hilarious.
2: Yeah, like, I mean, if you, if if, if it's like, oh, somebody says, oh, I got a I got a limited budget. I need a good board. Like, get your, go going, Craig. Let's get yourself a Mackie. They're great. Yeah. You know, for that price, you have that many channels and EQs and everything, man. I've done records on those, sure. you know? Yeah. I mean, Des- Desert Island, don't give me a Neumann, Give me a 57. Yeah. You know, you can record anything, anything Absolutely. with a 57, really. Yeah. You know? And I think those, are, those to me, are the really important messages for people that are, you know, trying to make cool records getting into it. I mean, yeah, and sure, if, after, if you have a budget and after years, you, you know... You know, you can you can try you can get you know a pool tech EQ or whatever. I mean, I use all kinds of cool stuff. That I I have cool gear out here, man. I use some cool stuff, mm-hmm. but you know, those are the leather seats. Those are not the that's right. not the engine. Those are luxuries, you know. And if you know, it's great if you have them, but pe- people feel so much pressure that that it, they need to buy or own or have these certain things in order to make cool sounding records, and it's just not true. I mean, it's bullshit. You know, to, Tommy made these that that first Charles Bradley record mostly with like a 57 in his bedroom, like a 388. And it's a great, great, great sounding record, you know? Yeah. And it's like you put that up against, you know, maybe, you know, Charles' last record where Tommy had all kinds of great gear. And if you look, listen to it as an engineer, there's, you know, there's some beautiful sounds and <clears throat> some pretty amazing things happening in- sonically. But if you listen to it, it's just somebody listening to a record. It's like, it doesn't matter that much it matters a little bit yeah like what really matters is you know the songs charles singing the cool bass line whatever like what the musicians are doing that's that's the meat of it
1: totally well thanks man i i, I mean i could talk to you all day but i this is uh it's amazing to talk to you about all this history and and your ideas and stuff and i really uh, thank you for spending the time with me
2: Yeah, Steve, man. If anything else comes up, man, give me a call. Sorry. I know it's a bit, I know it's a bit rambly.
1: No, it's great. That's, that's what this is all about. I, that's how I roll. Yeah.
2: (laughs) All right. Be well, man. All right. You too. Talk to you.
1: Bye. Bye. Folks. That was my conversation with Gabriel Roth. So great to speak with that guy make sure you go and download shitty is pretty volume one and two it's a great essay that you should read if you're into music you need to check it out and also check out all the great dap tones records that continue to come out to this day there's so much great music to check out and enjoy do that i will see you next month for another episode of music makers and soul shakers oh yeah Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research. And we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers.